Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we're going to talk about a document from the 18th century called The Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen by Olympe de Gouges. This declaration is considered an essential text in the study of human rights, but I had never heard of it until I did this podcast project and looked up a reading list of essential text in human rights and women's rights, and I had never heard the name Olympe de Gouges or this declaration before doing that, and my guess is that most listeners have never heard of this declaration either, even though it is so important in history. An 18th century declaration that I, of course, had heard of and that most listeners will certainly have heard of is the United States Declaration of Independence, which was written, of course, in 1776. In France, their landmark announcement of human rights was called the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, and it was written in 1789. Both of these declarations made really important steps forward toward a more inclusive democracy. But both declarations contained glaring omissions. In both countries, white male landowners continued to enslave and exploit their fellow human beings. And astonishingly, these declarations of human rights made no mention of that obscene violation of the values that they were espousing in their documents, the values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or liberty, equality, fraternity. And further, flying in the face of their noble assertions of human rights, both documents completely excluded women. So in France, after the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen came out, there was a woman who immediately recognized those omissions, and she wrote a rebuke and a correction to her country's declaration. Her response to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen was the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. And that's the text that we're going to discuss today. But first, let me introduce my reading partner for today's episode, Lindsay Olivest. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. This will be a great discussion. But before we do that, before we dive into the document itself, I'll introduce us a little bit to Olympe de Gouges. So Olympe de Gouges was born Marie Gouges in southwest France in 1748. Her family was middle class. We know that she had some education in her youth because she was a really great writer. But she was married against her will at age 16 to one of her father's business associates. The following year, so when she was only 17, Marie gave birth to her only child, who was a son, and her husband died. So she became a widow and a mother when she was just 17. Four years later, in 1770, she moved to Paris and became involved in some of the intellectual salons in the city. She didn't want to be known and kind of pitied and limited as just being known as her late husband's widow. So upon arriving in Paris, Marie renamed herself. She took on her mother's middle name, which was Olympe, and she changed the spelling of her father's surname. So it had been Gouze, G-O-U-Z-E, but she changed it to De Gouge, like adding the De as like an aristocratic kind of flourish to make mm -hmm. her sound fancier, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so as she was attending these salons in Paris, she 
was introduced to well-known writers. And she also began a relationship with a wealthy businessman who supported her financially. But she never married again, and she actively rejected the institution of marriage. During this time, she also started a theater company and began writing her own plays. And these plays dealt with political issues such as the abolition of slavery, women's rights, and class inequality in France. And because of those plays and her increasing kind of the publicness of of her work, she was a target for harassment and criticism in Paris. She had really radical opinions. And also just simply because she was a female playwright. She was violently opposed to French colonization and slavery, and she wrote works called Reflections on the Rights of Black Men and the Slavery of Black People. And those works attracted fierce opposition. When the French Revolution began, de Gouge supported it. She was a strong advocate for economic and social change, especially regarding the abolition of slavery and women's rights, But she supported the idea of reforming the monarchy rather than abolishing it. And at the time, more radical groups wanted to execute King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, which, of course, they eventually did in 1793. So that position of kind of being a monarchist made her unpopular with the more radical groups. In order to understand the text that she wrote, we need to back up a little bit and understand the document that she was responding to, which was the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. And in order to understand that, we need to understand the basics of what the French Revolution was and why it happened. So, Lindsay, could you tell us a bit about that? Of course. The French Revolution began largely as a consequence of an economic crisis and huge socioeconomic inequality, like many revolutions do. So the three estates system basically divided France's population into three distinct social groups. And the very top, the first estate, was the clergy, so priests of the Catholic Church, and even the Pope actually ranked above the king. So the Catholic Church was extremely important politically in France's system at the time. And the second estate was the nobility, so, you know, nobles who owned land, um, people who would basically, like, be in the court of the king. And then at the bottom was the third estate, which literally encompassed every single other person in France. And this was roughly 96% of the total population. After decades of this really awful situation, King Louis XVI, who nobody liked him anyway at this point, they thought he was weak and petty, um, but he finally called a meeting of the Estates General in 1789 which basically meant that representative members from each estate, so of each social group, were brought to Versailles for a meeting. For several weeks at this estate's general meeting, representatives of the third estate basically had to fight just to be included in the discussions and voting. They were kind of kicked out of most of the meetings and just were not included, even though they had been invited there. And after about a month of this happening, The third estate forcefully took over the proceedings and declared themselves the National Assembly, basically the new group in charge of France's government. So this was the first step towards the people delegitimizing the monarchy and seizing power for themselves, and it was very effective. And in response, the king locked the National Assembly out of the meeting, and so the representatives who were rebelling got together on a handball court, and they wrote the famous tennis court oath, which is clearly misnamed as they were on more of a handball (laughs) court. But anyway, (laughs) this tennis court oath was really important, and it was basically a document that swore that the National Assembly, this group of the Third Estate who were coming together, 
together that they would not disband until they wrote a constitution for France. After this, rumors started flying around France that the king was going to crush the Third Estate. And this is what led to the famous storming of the Bastille. And basically mass chaos ensued because of this panic. There were two weeks of straight up mob violence, beginning with the decapitation via knife and head piking of the governor Delaunay, who I think was the governor of the Bastille. This was a country that was questioning its very foundations. The -hmm. people were so furious about the structural inequalities in their society, and they genuinely wanted to tear it all down and build something new and better in its place. So some of the changes they wanted to make to France's system were, one, abolishing feudalism. A second change they wanted to make was abolishing tithes to the Catholic Church. And the third thing they wanted to do, of many other things, was establish a meritocracy where basically every citizen would be eligible for any job they wanted. And you could determine what you wanted to do with your life. So they just wanted a more free society and everybody kind of had different ideas of what that would look like, as we'll see a little bit later. But those were three of their main goals. So to enshrine these principles in a document, much like America's Declaration of Independence and Constitution, the Marquis de Lafayette and some other men wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which was published in 1789 as the preamble to the Constitution that came out two years later in 1791. And this declaration asserted that men have natural rights. And they also said that all men's natural rights were equal to one another's rights. And this document is considered hugely important in the history of human rights. And it was a big step forward for the oppressed citizens of France who were male and white. Not for everybody. It didn't acknowledge enslaved people at all. It didn't mention women at all. And I can just imagine how infuriating that would have been. Like, Mm -hmm. really? You're going to all this trouble of dismantling this power structure, and you're trying to make a new just society from scratch, and you completely forgot about more than half of the population. And that's how Alain de Gouges felt. So that's why she took the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, and she wrote a new document, and she called it the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. And she took every single article, basically, of the original declaration and applied it to men and women point for point. She published it in 1791, and immediately after she published it, many of the radicals of the revolution accused her of treason, and she was tried for treason, and de Gouges was sentenced to execution by the guillotine. And mm-hmm. when she was executed, her crime, according to the newspaper at the time, was that she had, quote, forgotten the virtues which belonged to her sex. And mm-hmm. she was beheaded on November 3rd, 1793, at the age of 45. Yeah, that is so tragic. And it's kind of shocking to hear that statement right? That she had forgotten Mm -hmm. the virtues which belonged to her sex. How would those virtues have been defined back then? Basically, like your average 18th century woman did not work, was just hardworking at home. She was very Mm -hmm. chaste. She was quiet. She was submissive. She was Christian. And women conceived on average every 20 months. So women Mm -hmm. were basically having children and working at home. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. Just a kind yeah. of quiet and submissive life for them to lead. Mm-hmm. And those rules were all made for them by men. So let's dive in to a few of the articles of the declaration that we think are especially interesting or relevant. So, Lindsay, do you want to take the first one? Mm-hmm. 
So I actually thought that Article 1 and Article 4 were fairly similar to each other, and they're both short, so I will read them together. Article 1. Woman is born free and remains equal to man in her rights. Social distinctions may only be based on common utility. Article 4. Liberty and justice consist in restoring to others all that belongs to them. Hence, the only limits to the exercise of the natural rights of women are found in the perpetual male tyranny opposed to them. These limits must be reformed according to the laws of nature and reason. So do you have any thoughts about those first articles? I do have some thoughts. It was really during the Enlightenment that men came to see themselves as having natural rights that they're mm-hmm. born with, right? Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, it's not new to us. That just is a given. But to them, that was a radical, revolutionary new way of seeing human beings. Okay, mm-hmm. but I want to play the devil's advocate because I was just thinking, like, how could anybody argue with this? And one thing that came to my mind is that they would say, well, who gives them those rights, those natural rights. In our Declaration of Independence, in our country, it says that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So that creator that endowed men with those rights is the Judeo-Christian God, right? The God of the Bible. And in one biblical account, Eve is created in the image of God, So she might have the same individual value as Adam does, free and equal to man in rights, like Degouj says. Mm -hmm. But in the other biblical account in Genesis, she's created from Adam's rib. She's named by Adam. She's secondary. She's a helpmeet to Adam. And I mean, even though the first account is you know, better for women because it says she's created in God's image. Even in that case, in both cases, she is eventually made subject to Adam after she disobeys God and she causes the fall of man. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have the same rights. They don't, right? So I can see people saying, well, there's a social distinction made between man and women based on Adam and Eve. And that is, that's God's law that women should be subjugated because that's in the sacred text, right? Mm -hmm. And so they might say that Degouge's attempt to apply the enlightenment logic of natural rights to a woman is futile and it's sacrilegious and it's just like, it's wrong. It's incorrect because God created this system of women's subjugation, not human beings. Okay, so my question to you, I guess, is what stood out to you from these articles, Lynn? Um, The part where she says that social distinctions may only be based on common utility. Uh, this was specifically in reaction to the prior system, which was a caste system of clergy, nobility, and peasants. She did not want social distinctions to be based on kind of arbitrary, like basically what your job was. Nobility are not inherently better than peasants. And this was a huge step forward. But, again, what defines a person's common utility? Right? Like the women's common utility, to quote Mm -hmm. Deguj again, like the common utility is their reproductive capacity. They're just a womb with legs, basically. Yeah. That's their utility in society. And so even an appeal to natural rights can be problematic. And it's hard to get people on board that that means that everyone has the same rights to determine their own lives because... Again, like all of this decision-making power is still in the hands of men, whether they're scientists or philosophers or politicians or priests or whatever. 
Okay, let's keep going. Lindsay, what's another article that you that stood out to you from the declaration? All right, next I will read Article 6 and Article 13. Article 6 reads, The law should be the expression of the general will. All citizens, female and male, should participate in person or through their representatives in its formation. It should be the same for all. Female and male citizens, being equal in the eyes of the law, should be equally eligible for all public positions of rank, offices, and employment according to their ability and with no other distinction than those of their virtue and their talent. And Article 13 reads, The contributions of women and men to the maintenance of public authority and to administrative costs are equal. Women share in all the drudgery and all the painful tasks. Therefore, they must have the same share in the distribution of posts, employment, offices, rewards, and responsibilities. So these two articles are basically what I, when I mentioned earlier that they wanted a meritocracy, this is what they wanted, or this is what de Gouge wanted as well. And she's just rewriting this to include women because men wanted this for themselves, you know? Hmm. And so de Gouge is just saying, yes, but also include women in this. Like women, we are willing to do all of the hard work that men are willing to do. We will share in all the drudgery and all the painful tasks So give us the same share in employment and offices and rewards and responsibility. She's saying, like, please just honestly include us in in the work in society. We don't want to be relegated to staying at home. We're willing to work hard. You just need to acknowledge that we can work hard with you. So that's why I like these articles, because she's saying, Mm. you know, sometimes people will say, Women don't want to be equal. They don't mm-hmm. want to have to work as hard as men. Like men do all these difficult things that women would never want to do. And like honestly, <laughs> just just treat us the same like we have the same abilities in general and then just individually look at our skills and talent and whatever. But don't just mm-hmm. treat women as not being hard working. Anyway, mm-hmm. that that's why I like these articles. What do you think? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's such a great example. It reminded me of Gerda Lerner again, where she talks about women just just reinventing the wheel. We just keep having these conversations over and over again, partly Mm -hmm. because we don't learn what has happened in the past and partly because if the governing body remains all or mostly male, then they really can't be expected to look out for the rights of women. We all only see the world through the eyeballs that we see through and like through our own experience. And so Mm -hmm. some men might, you know, maybe they have a lot of sisters or they, their mom talked to them a lot and they might kind of have more women more on their radar if they get into a position of, of power, but most men will not. And so if it's, if it's not written into a country's constitution, then the laws can change depending on whichever man is in charge. This ground that has been covered and all of all of the progress that has been made can be undone so fast if it's not in a constitution. And that's why mm-hmm. I think de Gouge was so smart and so ahead of her time in immediately wanting to rewrite the declaration. And it is. It's just astounding in our country that 230 years after de Gouge, America cannot even get an amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing that women can't be discriminated on the basis of sex. It's just really unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, that so that's what I thought of to your point of, you know, women want to do that hard work. Okay, one more article that I wanted to share is Article 12, and it says this, quote, Guaranteeing the rights of woman and the female citizen requires the existence of a greater good. 
This guarantee must be instituted for the advantage of all and not for the private benefit of those on whom it is conferred. What did you think of that, Lens? Um, yeah, honestly, sometimes I think people don't understand. They say like, oh, why should we make this change? Like, will it really benefit everybody? And Olympic is just saying, yes, it will benefit everybody. All of society benefits when everybody's equal. Yeah, totally. I it makes me think that she's she's responding. I'm guessing she's having conversations with in her salons with people that she knows too. And it makes me think she's responding to men that she knows probably who are worried that women are going to end up having more rights than they do. Right. And that those conversations are still happening today. Like, Oh, the pendulum is going to swing too far, which is a legitimate and valid question always to bring up, especially we just talked about the French revolution and people decapitating each other with knives, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) the pendulum swing is, is a legitimate, um, thing to always have in mind. It's a fair concern, but at the same time, when they wrote the declaration of the rights of man, were they being super careful to prove that lifting up the common man would also benefit the aristocracy? Like, don't worry, aristocracy, you're be, you'll be okay. You can keep your shoe mm-hmm. collection mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, <laughs> and I just, I just uh-huh. feel like I've been accused personally of, like, even on the podcast of like, oh, you bend over backwards too much to not offend men and reassure mm. men that they're, you know, don't worry, you're going to benefit from egalitarianism too. You're going to mm-hmm. benefit from women having more rights and patriarchy harms men too. Yeah. And I stand by that approach because I do love men and because I really do believe that egalitarianism benefits everyone. And I do believe that patriarchy hurts everyone. And you know me, Linz, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a pacifist and I, I love people and I don't want anyone to get hurt. Mm -hmm. But I do think that sometimes people in power are just, they are going to find it uncomfortable to rebalance things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do need to be more okay with ruffling people's feathers. And so to Degouge, I would just say, Olamp. (laughs) Olamp Degouge. I would say, don't worry, like women are in no danger, especially in the 1700s. Women are in no danger of becoming overly privileged, right? (laughs) Yes. French women are not even going to, I was thinking about this from the time she wrote this French woman, French Mm -hmm. women would not get the right to vote until 1944. Yeah. That's 155 more years. So for her to, to be like, oh, don't worry, men, this is just like... You know, this is going to be for your advantage, too. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Like women have such a long way to go before they even get to equity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, sadly, I not necessarily. Well, yes, I think it's sad. People who are oppressed, there is a balance between appealing to their the people who rank above them or, you know, who say they rank above them, you have Mm -hmm. to appeal or you won't be listened to. Right. In some situations. And obviously there are, yeah, like you said, that balance is just hard. You know, Mm -hmm. I I want to be sensitive. I want to appeal and say, like, here, I can help you understand this. And then sometimes, like with the Jordan Peterson guy, I say, actually, I I'm tired of talking to you. You're a jerk. I, right. You are not going to understand. I'm not going to appeal to you. You're not worth my time. I'm just going to mm-hmm. fight this and ignore you. Like, there's right. a balance there. And I think in 18th century France, in, um, in France, she couldn't afford to not 
be mm-hmm. careful. And she mm-hmm. had to say, like, this will benefit everybody because I like we've talked about she was already being accused of being radical when really like politically she was radical and asking for women's rights and the abolition of slavery, but not even in terms of the revolution. Like mm-hmm. I think she really had to be really careful. And that is what's sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. Do you want to just take it away from there? Um, yes. So Another article we're going to read is Article 26, which says, Any society that is without guaranteed rights and separation of powers is without a constitution. A constitution is void if the majority of individuals comprising the nation has not cooperated in its drafting. And when she's writing this in 1791, the Constitution of 1791, which followed the preamble, which is the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of Citizen, um, I don't know if I made that clear that they the declar or the constitution that they ended up publishing came out the same year as this. And so mm-hmm. basically she's publishing this at the same time that the constitution, which was dead on arrival anyway, because the revolution had progressed a lot farther than they had anticipated in those two years. But that constitution that they published this year was already all just completely written by men. And so mm-hmm. she's saying like in this revolution, you are writing all these things that are radical and revolutionary, and it's all men, and I think that's void. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What that makes me think of is that famous Abigail Adams quote that's on the the women's monument in Boston, where mm-hmm. we always go when I'm in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote it down, actually, because I thought I might want to share it, so I'm going to. So this is Abigail Adams writing to her husband, John Adams, who has gone to the Constitutional Convention, again, you know, on this side of the Atlantic Ocean a little bit earlier. But France and and the United States had parallel experiences in many ways. And Mm -hmm. she says, so she says to John, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That's the end of that quote. And I think that's exactly what Deguja is saying, right? She's Mm -hmm. saying... This, the Constitution is void because women don't have any representation in it. And we won't hold ourselves bound by a Constitution where we didn't get to participate in making the laws that we're, that we're bound by. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. And honestly, that quote makes me wish there had been a women's rebellion, you know, because <laughs> she, she yeah. said, John, please put the women in the Declaration and in the Constitution. And he didn't. And yeah. she said, uh, if you don't do this, we are determined to foment a rebellion. And I wish that had happened. <laughs> yeah, that's I, true. Yeah. One thing that will be really cool is later in the podcast when we get into the 19th century and we talk about suffrage. Mm-hmm. And especially in England, like they, some of those women actually did use some really, I mean, actually violent and some... I'm not advocating violence. Again, I'm a Quaker. I'm a <laughs> I'm a pacifist, but they actually did. They used a lot of not just demure and like, oh, please, please remember the ladies, yeah. right? Like there were yeah. bombs. There were 
there were there was stuff thrown in people's faces. Somebody went up to Winston Churchill and whipped him with a horse whip in nice. like 1909. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about suffrage later. And and there were people, yeah, and you know, obviously like chaining themselves to fences and mm-hmm. going on hunger strikes. And yeah. there was kind of it kind of did amount to a war at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, France not until 1944. Unbelievable. No. So very late to the game. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the conversation, Linz. As we wrap up, is there a takeaway or one last passage from the document that you want to share? Yeah, I think I'll actually end with a quote from the postscript of the Declaration, um, which really resonates today, just as it did 230 years ago. This is something I feel very strongly about, and I think she puts it really well. Note that she uses this word toxin, which is spelled T-O-C-S-I-N, not T-O-X-I-N, and it means an alarm bell. So she's not talking about poison. She's talking about an alarm bell. Um, And it reads, Woman, awake. The toxin of reason is sounding across the universe. Acknowledge your rights. Nature's powerful empire is no longer hemmed in by prejudice, fanaticism, superstition, and lies. The torch of truth has dispersed all the clouds of folly and usurpation. Enslaved man has multiplied his strength and has needed yours to break his chains. But once free, he has become unjust to his companion. O women, women, when will you cease to be blind? What advantages has the revolution brought you? Still greater contempt, still more overt disdain. You must courageously counter these vain pretensions of superiority with the power of reason. You must unite under the banner of philosophy, deploy all your energy of character, and you will soon see these arrogant men not groveling at your feet in servile adoration, but proud to share with you the treasures of the supreme being. Whatever barriers are placed before you, it is in your power to overcome them. All you need is the will. Thank you so much, Lindsay. That was the perfect way to to end the episode. 